Let's pray together. Lord, it always amazes me how something that seems to be so manifestly human in terms of the act of preaching or a man standing behind a pulpit with notes in front of him can be blessed and owned by your spirit. But we have to believe that's true because you, you've called us to this task. You've called us to this morning. You've called us to this passage of scripture and you want to speak to us. And, and this text is so comforting, so encouraging. And it's ama- we, we can believe that you would be that you would comfort certain people. The, the struggle that we have sometimes is believing that you would comfort us in particular when we think about our sin and our offenses to you, that you would be so gracious to us, to me, and to individuals in this room. Lord, come, make this text sing. I cannot make it sing. I can merely stand here but i need your spirit to make it sing so come and do that for us in jesus name amen well just when you think that the words of jesus can't get any more outrageous in the gospel of john they do the words that come out of his mouth in chapter 14 are just staggering so can we just stop for a moment before we even get into this message and recognize the, the weight and the glory and the power of those words that we just heard read to us? I mean, what Jesus said, what you just heard read, that Jesus said is, is breathtaking. In fact, it's shocking. Who says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Who says things like, no one comes to the Father except through me? Who says stuff like, the one who has seen me has seen the Father? And then Jesus just kind of leaves that statement hanging over us, which is just unbelievably awesome. It's no wonder that the Jews wanted to stone him. I mean, who talks like this? And yet, line after line of these 11 verses are filled with such statements by Jesus. Which means that when we finally come to apprehend or understand what Jesus is saying in this text, we should either leave this room thinking that Jesus is an absolute kook, or he is the king of glory. And we should fall on our faces then before him. And so Jesus wants us to feel the weight of these words. Words that I just think are extremely relevant and practical to us in this day and age. Words that are so helpful. You know what was clear to me in preparing this message this week is that if, if we need a text of scripture on a regular basis, this is one. This is one we need to hear and and respond to on a regular basis. We need this passage because if your tendency is anything like mine, then you are prone to carry around with you 
even on a daily basis, um, a troubled heart. Even people that are happy in this life, even people that are generally happy, can, can, you know what it's like to carry around with you a troubled heart because of some circumstance or some situation in your life that has crept up and, and you're just, you get up in the morning and it's the first thing you think of. And, and some of that's seasonal for us and some of that is pretty regular for some of you, but you know what it's like to have a troubled heart. Even happy people. And so as stunning and provocative as this text is, what we find is that Jesus is speaking words of comfort into the hearts of his troubled disciples. That's what this paragraph of scripture is all about. So you can't just rip John fourteen six out of this passage and preach it without missing the real significance of these words. I'm convinced of that. I think it's fun to preach John 14, 6 on its own in a certain setting. But as I was preparing this message, I didn't have any heart to do that. Because as I saw how Jesus was using John 14, 6 to comfort his disciples, I felt so inclined to preach to you this context so you could understand it. It's really a remarkable passage. This passage is not fundamentally a proof text for why Jesus is the only way to God. It is that, but it's not first that. It's not fundamentally that. Fundamentally, this is a passage intended to give comfort to a group of broken-hearted, confused disciples who are literally on the verge of breakdown. Martin Luther said that this was the best and most comforting sermon that the Lord delivered on earth. Those are big words from Luther. Herman Ulsthausen says... We come to a portion of John's gospel, which some have called an invitation to the Holy of Holies, because it is the record of the last moments spent by the Lord in the midst of his disciples before his passion, when words full of heavenly thought flowed from his sacred lips. That's well said. And here we have a front row seat into the upper room as Christ ministers to his disciples. And the words that Jesus speaks to his disciples are immensely relevant for us. They, they ooze with compassion and love. He's not giving them a sermon. Jesus is sitting with them very conversationally and he's talking to them very quietly. It's a serious moment. Jesus is around a table with his disciples. And this is a serious moment. And Jesus begins laying on them some heavy, heavy, heavy realities. And so the atmosphere in the upper room is thick. It is heavy. It is dark. It is almost oppressive. In fact, even Jesus is deeply troubled. We see that in chapter 13, verse 21, where it says of Jesus that he was very troubled in his spirit. Which means, that word very troubled means that Jesus was feeling an intense pressure in his heart. So... It's not only Jesus, though, who's troubled, but the disciples. And the main reason why these disciples are troubled is that Jesus just told them that he was leaving them. And that they can't come with him. Now think about this. For three years, these guys had walked with Jesus. And suddenly, he's walking out. Suddenly, he's leaving. Suddenly, they're going to be left on their own. I mean, these are fishermen that sort of gave up their whole profession. These are tax collectors that quit their jobs to follow this man. And he's like, I'm out of here and you can't go with me. 
And he doesn't, he doesn't go beyond that. He just kind of leaves that there hanging with them. So they're confused. These guys are feeling abandoned by Jesus. They're feeling vulnerable. They're feeling misguided. They've left everything to follow him. And now all their hopes and their dreams and their plans are shattered on the floor. That's the emotion in this room. And on top of that, the heaviness in the room only increases when Jesus says, actually, one of you guys is going to betray me. And, and it becomes even thicker when he calls Peter out and he says, Peter, Simon Peter, you, you will deny me three times before the next day's dawn. And so these men are disturbed. They're bewildered. They're burdened. They're absolutely perplexed. But you know, as I read these words this week in preparation for John chapter 14... One of the things that impressed me the most was that in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of this turmoil, Jesus speaks words of comfort. What's amazing to me is to think about the fact that in the face of his own impending death, literally just hours away, Jesus' chief focus is not on himself, but his chief focus is on how to comfort his disciples. That ought, to, that ought to break your heart. Think about this. I mean, if there was ever a time when the disciples should have been ministering to Jesus, it was now. But instead, they find themselves on the receiving end of being comforted by Jesus, who's on the cusp of the greatest agony of his life. And he knows that. Jesus knows that. And yet, he's so concerned about his disciples. Think about what this says about our Savior's heart. His selflessness is so beautifully manifest in this passage. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many, even at the last moments of his life. Well, one of the things that this chapter teaches us is that we stand in need of the same words of comfort that Christ gave his disciples What I like about this passage is that in this text, we see three disciples. Three of them are called out by name. We have Peter, Thomas, and Philip, and all of them are struggling with a different issue. Peter here has a fear problem. He's afraid of the future. Thomas has a faith problem because he doubts the way forward, and Philip... Philip has a perception problem. That is, he's unable to discern who Jesus is even after three years. He's still confused about Jesus. There's things about Jesus he's just coming to know. Like, wow, are you really? After three years. And so doesn't this sound like us? Faith problems, fear problems, perception problems. And, and, and here's what unites these guys is the fact that they're all troubled. They all feel alone and abandoned by Jesus. And so in one sense, the theme of my message this morning is this. They're wrong. They're all wrong. They're wrong about that. They're not abandoned by Jesus. These guys are convinced that if Jesus departs, they're convinced that they're in big trouble. But the fact of the matter is the exact opposite is true. Unless Jesus goes away, they're in huge trouble. And and in this context, it's Jesus that speaks these profound words of comfort. And that that brings us to our question this morning, which is, what are we to do with our troubled hearts? What, What comfort can we find this morning? 
Jesus answers that by encouraging us to anchor our hopes in two things. Two things. His promises for the future and his provisions for the present. So let's look at these guys, Peter, Thomas, and Philip, and see how Jesus meets each of them with his promises and provision. First, let's look at Peter's fear. Uh, We pick this up in chapter 13, verse 36, where Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So Peter is afraid here. By saying, where are you going? What Peter's really saying is, you can't leave us now, Jesus. We've been with you all this time. What do you mean you're leaving us? And Jesus begins to comfort them in verse 1. And he says in verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Friends, it's, it's those moments of your life, of your day, when all your worries begin to whelm, overwhelm you, when all your thoughts and fears and grief come crashing in. Maybe for some of you, it feels like a bleeding heart, a gaping wound, an unbearable heartache, a crushing pain. And Jesus says to you this morning, do not, do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is entering into your struggle. In a sense, Jesus is suffering with you. I love the words of Isaiah 63, 9, which says, In all their suffering, he suffered. What what a compassionate Savior we have. And to comfort his disciples, Jesus says two things. He says, trust me, number one, and number two, rest in my promises. So he's going to give them some future promises that he wants them to rest in. And then he's just going to sort of blanket, make a blanket statement and say, trust me. Okay, so that's the first thing he says, trust me. And then he's going to give them some future promises. So the first thing Jesus tells his disciples is trust. That's in verse 1. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, at first glance, this seems like a, a strange way, at least to me, to comfort troubled people. Is there anything that seems strange about that to you? Because it's like that moment, just trying to think of, a, of an illustration here. It's like that moment when you are, you're in the midst of something really dark. Maybe it's a dark trial or a painful loss. And some well-meaning person walks up to you and says, hey man, just trust God. It just feels so cheap when that happens. I mean, doesn't it? Haven't you experienced that? I I hate that. I hate it. It just feels so cheap. And in some ways, actually, I think it makes the pain worse. I mean, I'm already troubled. And now you're telling me my faith is weak. I mean, that's how I hear it. I hear it as, look, I just lost like a loved one who's died tragically. And and, and within, within, within 10 minutes, you say, hey, man, trust God. Just, just a word of pastoral encouragement. A word to the wise, that, that, that's not a loving thing to do at that moment. There, there needs to be some time where a person can process what's going on. And, and, and those words of trust, trust God, they need to come. But if they come too soon, it can feel really cheap. 
when you're visiting people in the hospital and you're visiting people in tragic situations, give some time. Give some time for them to process and think. And, be, and you have to be very spiritually perceptive to their needs. Now, in some senses, that's why I think this is a tough way to start because it just feels, Jesus' words here just feel kind of, they just feel so um, just blanket. It's just so it's just um, factual. Just believe in God. It's like you want more here. You're expecting more. And so let me just give you a word of, of, of encouragement up front, a word of caution as we go through with this text. See, as this text develops, as Jesus begins to show us how to deal with our troubled hearts, you might sit in your chair this morning and be tempted to think, you know what, these arguments that, that I'm hearing or that Jesus is giving here, they just don't seem to be that helpful to me because my problem is really different than what these guys are facing here. So it's just, it's not helping me that much. And you might be tempted to think that way. And, but I got to tell you that what I found as I was studying this text this week is that as the text develops, it starts to feel more and more helpful. At least that was my experience this week. As I dug deeper and deeper, I found faith rising in my heart. So I'm just giving you that up front in case any of you start moving in that direction. Now, Jesus says, believe in me. In other words, receive me, count on me, bank on me, trust in me. It's all over this text. He starts that way in verse 1 and he ends that way in verse 11. So in one sense, could it get any simpler than this? Jesus is saying, if you do this, if you trust me, then you will find peace for your troubled heart. That's the argument. Believe me. The sense of verse 1 is actually keep on believing in me. You believe God, keep on believing also in me. Don't give up. Whatever your heartache, whatever your loss, whatever your fear, believe that God is working these things for your good. And he's calling you to trust him. Just believe that. Believe that. Believe that. And now if you're like me, you want something else to sort of ground that in. I mean, of course, of course we should just believe God. There's no denying that. But we are frail creatures and we often need something to ground that faith in. So what is it about God's nature or God's character that gives me hope? What promises can we anchor our hope in? And thankfully, Jesus doesn't just leave those words hanging, just believe me. He says, I'm going to give you some promises here that you can, you can drill down in and anchor these hopes in, anchor your faith in. And I love that about Jesus. He anticipates our struggle and our problem and our questions. And he gives us some amazing promises. Do you ever stop and just think how generous our God is? He's always going the extra mile with us. He's always helping us. He's always helping us move forward. And here Jesus lays out some precious promises for us to anchor our hope in. And here's the first one. Jesus says, if you're fearful or troubled, don't be because I have gone to, pre- I have left to prepare a place for you. It's in verse 36 that Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus finally comes around to the answer and he says, Peter... Peter, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Verse 2. In my father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? See, Jesus, what he's doing here is giving his disciples encouragement. He's giving them reasons why they can trust him. And by saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you, Jesus is saying, in fact, I am on my way to the cross. If if I don't leave right now, Peter, then you are going to be left in your sin. In about nine hours, I will be preparing with my broken, condemned, forsaken, and crucified body a place for you. This is powerful. And Jesus is essentially telling them, look, nobody gets into the Father's house or nobody gets a room there or a place there unless I go to prepare it. What do you think it means to prepare a place for you? What is, how exactly does Jesus prepare a place for us in his Father's house? Answer, the cross. So Jesus says, don't be troubled because I'm doing this for you. I am going to prepare a place for you. Jesus is telling his disciples that because of his death, in fact, this world will no longer be their home. Don't call this place home. It's not your home. Your ultimate dwelling place is somewhere else. He is giving them a sneak preview of the new heavens and the new earth. Incredible. And he calls it his father's house. (laughs) I love this. Christ is saying to these men, one of the reasons why you have a broken heart is that you're not home yet. And friends, isn't this the reason why so many of you have broken hearts this morning? You're not home. This is not home. This is a world filled with pain. This is a world filled with suffering and trial and darkness and discouragement. And so it's no wonder that you're feeling broken hearted. This is not your home. And how often do we fall into the temptation of thinking this is our home? We start settling here when it's not. This is not our home. It's merely a layover on our way home. So my encouragement to you is lift up your eyes and start looking at the Father's house. I love a story of this elderly Christian couple. They were a missionary couple. And they went overseas and they served Jesus for so many years And they're tired and they're coming home finally after so many years of pouring themselves out on the mission field. And they get on the ship and the ship is filled with British soldiers. And these British soldiers are on the ship and this this sweet English missionary couple is riding home with their countrymen, these soldiers. And when they get home, there's these massive crowds screaming, yelling, clapping, welcoming in all these soldiers. And the old man just hangs his head. And he looks at his wife and he says, why is it that no one is here to welcome us home? Why is that? And his wife looks at him and says, it's very simple, my dear. We're not yet home. And friend, neither are you. If you're a follower of Christ today, you're not yet home. But here's the good news. Christ has prepared a place for you. So that's reason number one, not to be troubled. Reason number two is found in verse three. Jesus says, if I go away and prepare a place for you, then I will come back and receive you to myself. 
so that where I am, you may be also. In other words, if you are, 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 are troubled because you're going to miss me, guess what? I'm coming back to get you. And when I get you, I'm going to bring you back to myself. <laughs> Amazing words from Jesus. Je- re- reason number two for not to be troubled is that I'm coming back to get you. Now, this is another anchor for our faith and what a promise it is. The Bible calls this the blessed hope of Christ's return. And the beautiful thing here is that the focus of these words is not so much on the circumstances surrounding the second coming of Jesus, but the comfort, the comfort that we'll enjoy on, the, on that day in the presence of God. The, 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 the point here is that when I come back, you're going to be free. You're going to be comfortable. You're going to be with me. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I know that you're concerned about my departure, but I want you to know something, that I'm coming back to get you, and when I do, you're going to be with me forever. So you, you, you merely just have to hang on a little while longer. The great point here that Jesus is making is that he's getting his disciples to see their future hope. That's why I started the sermon by saying there's some future promises and some present privileges or some present provisions. And and this is the future hope. And for us, we need to realize that our hope in this life is primarily futuristic. Primarily. That is, we long for the return of Jesus Christ to free us from this body of death and this sin-wrecked world. Oh, how I want to be free from this place. See, that's why we, we have to burn our candles out and live as urgently as we can for Jesus now. Because what, what other good is there in this life? What's the point of this place? Unless we're just living it, giving our all for Jesus because our real hope is in the future. So don't root your hope here. Don't root it in your house and in your home and in your cars and in your kids. Root your hope in the blessed hope of Christ's return. And in that hope, you will find new impetus to live radically for Jesus in this life. So Jesus, all of God's true people are, have within them an innate desire to scream out at the top of their lungs, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, here's what I find really interesting. Okay, let's stop in this narrative and, and, and realize something. It's really interesting that Peter is silent now. In fact, this is the last time we hear Peter's voice for the rest of John's gospel. Until he denies Jesus. Until he says, I never knew that man. This is the last time we hear Peter and all of a sudden Peter is silent and I find that interesting because I think we learned something from this how easy is it to hear faithful preaching and teaching of God's word but not be changed by it it, it, it is so easy for us to be hearers of the word, but not doers. I mean, if Peter just heard these great words of comfort from the mouth of Jesus, and yet he still denies Jesus, how susceptible are we to the same mistake? Oh, how I pray that God would make us a Monday church and not just a Sunday church. 
that God would make us a people that applies the word preached and not just listens to the word preached. Let's be eager to implement everything God is saying to us. And so let me ask you, what is your plan weekly for obeying God's word after you hear it? How do you plan to apply the sermons that you hear? Have you ever thought about this? If you haven't, let me, let me give you some help here. I wrote down five steps, five practical ways to apply the truth of God's word, okay? Five things, here we go. Number one, number one, after the sermon, here's what I want you to do. Write down all the ways that you wish everybody else in this church would obey the teaching you just heard. Now, don't hold back. Just write down every way you think they should change. And then when you're all done, tear it up. Tear it up and throw it away. Then you're ready for business. Okay? Now, now that you're ready to engage with God's word significantly, here's my real recommendations. Okay? Write down as precisely as you can some action that you need to take to obey the text preached. I mean, this may be a change of behavior. It may be a change of a thought pattern. It may be a specific action step that you're taking. It may be something that you need to stop doing. It may be something that you need to start doing. But whatever it is, write it down and make it as specific as possible. Number two, next Sunday, plan to review those action items after lunch. You just find a, find a time on Sunday to review those things. And then in a month's time, collect them. And then in a month's time, look back at what you've written down and ask yourself whether or not that text of Scripture has made any substantial difference in your life. If you don't ask that, then chances are you'll forget about it. Number three, pray. Pray, pray, pray that God would work obedience into your life through that text of Scripture. That, that's huge. You're not forgetting prayer. And number four, enjoy, enjoy preaching. Enjoy preaching not as entertainment, but as God's regular, gracious invitation to walk with him. Isn't that great? This is an invitation to further walk with Christ, to deepen our relationship with him. So by doing that, you, have a, you can rejoice in a good conscience. So even though we're like Peter here, here's the good news is that when we are faithless, God is faithful. And he was in Peter's life as well. And the fact is, things end well for Peter here. The words of Jesus that he spoke in the upper room, they did transform Peter. Because, and the reason we know that is because in his epistle, it's Peter who says, Thank God that we have been born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ raised from the dead and have an inheritance that is incorruptible and being kept in heaven for us. Isn't that great? This is Peter. This is the same Peter that denied Jesus. And the question I ask you is, where did that faith come from? Where did it come from? It came from these words of Jesus in the upper room. Eventually they sunk in and really significantly changed and transformed Peter. Praise God for that. And there's great comfort in that for us because here's the lesson is that even though Peter took his eyes off of Christ temporarily, Christ never took his eyes off of Peter. Peter returned and, and we owe our perseverance 
to God's loyal faithfulness toward us. Our hold on the Lord may be frail at times. It is frail at times. But God's hold of us is always tight and always secure. Praise his name. So Jesus speaks these words of comfort to his disciples. And he says, to you, to your fearful and troubled hearts this morning, trust me. Keep believing in me. I have prepared a place in my father's house for you, number one. And number two, I'm coming back to get you and bring you to myself. Awesome. Friends, these promises are designed by God to heal our anxious and troubled hearts. Well, that's Peter. Let's meet Thomas. What's Thomas's problem? Well, Thomas appears to have a faith issue. He's battling unbelief. That is, he's called Doubting Thomas for a reason. And he's always struggling with this. And his problem here is something that we're all too familiar with. We say to the Lord, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Thomas is struggling to believe that Jesus has really made a way for him. That's his problem here at the root. It's, It's a very real struggle for Thomas. He's saying, is it true is it really true? And how can, I, how can we know the way to God, Jesus? We pick it up in verse 4. Jesus says, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? See, you see, Thomas was the great realist among the disciples. Thomas, when Lazarus died in John chapter 10, they, they almost stoned Jesus. Jesus was just in Bethany, and they almost stoned him. And when Lazarus died, Jesus says, we're going to go back to Bethany. And Thomas says, rather cynically, oh, well, then Jesus, if you go, you're going to die, so we might as well all go and die with Jesus. That's Thomas. Thomas is the, the great realist among the disciples. Thomas comes off as this guy who's just being real, but the truth of the matter is he's rather faithless. He's pessimistic. Where does his pessimism come from? Well, first of all, it springs from a heart of unbelief. A pessimistic outlook on life is often due to focusing our eyes on what we can see rather than tuning our ears to what Jesus has said. In the Bible, you don't believe with your eyes. You believe by hearing and by believing what Jesus says to you in his word. And Thomas's problem is that his eyes are focused on his own ability to interpret the world around him. He's a realist, but his realism is simply a thin disguise for his lack of trust in the Savior. So, how does Jesus answer? How does he comfort? What consolation does he give to Thomas? Well, I love this. Instead of rebuking Thomas and saying, your faith is just messed up, man. Jesus speaks a word of truth. And he speaks a word of truth into his doubt. Love this. Verse 5, Thomas says, how can we know the way? Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What Jesus is saying to Thomas is that if you're looking for a way to the Father's house, there's only one way, Thomas. Now, you need to know that the words truth and life here are meant to support the claim that Jesus is the only way. In other words, what this verse is teaching is that Jesus is the way to God precisely because he's the truth of God and the life of God. 
What makes him the way is that he is the truth of God. What makes him the way is that he is the life of God. So Jesus is the truth, John 1.14, because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. In other words, if you want to know God, then know this. The pinnacle of God's self-revelation is the person of Jesus Christ. He alone narrates God. John 1.18. He is God's gracious self-disclosure, his word made flesh. So Jesus is the truth. But he's also the life, John 1.4. He is the life because he is the one who has life in himself, John 5.26. And he is the resurrection and the life, John 11.25. So when Thomas says that he doesn't know the way, Jesus responds by saying, I am the way. I am the way to go because in my very person, I am am the revelation of God and I am the eternal life of God. The reason why I am the way is because in me is possessed all the all the attributes of the divine nature. I am life. I am truth. Thomas Akempis says, without the way there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. Which brings us full circle. Because Thomas is struggling. And Jesus is saying, Thomas, you need to do the same thing I just told Peter to do. You need to believe in me. Faith is the issue. Do you really believe me? If you want to know the way, then listen to this, Thomas. I am the way. Clearly, Jesus is making an exclusive claim here. And this is the way most preachers preach the text, which is faithful and true. Jesus is making an exclusive claim. He's claiming to be the one avenue to God. Now, we are surrounded by voices in our contemporary culture that are just furious over this kind of speech. You bigoted, prejudiced Christians. Jesus is the only way. Please, let me just be clear about something. It's not we who are making this claim for ourselves. It is Jesus who's making this claim. You have a problem with Jesus if you have a problem with this claim. Not fundamentally a problem with Christians. We're just trying to be faithful to what Jesus said. After all, we're followers of Jesus. So if Jesus said he's the only way, we're just taking his word for it. So you actually have a problem with Jesus. So that is what Jesus means by the way, the truth, and the life. Now, that sounds so esoteric. It sounds so philosophical. It sounds so theological. And some of you might be sitting here this morning and you're just saying, you know, I'm glad Peter's getting help here. Honestly, I really am. I'm glad Peter's getting help. I'm glad Philip is being helped here. But I got cancer. I have cancer. I don't know what to do with my marriage. It's terrible. All trust in my marriage is is going away. It's, It's terrible. The affection is gone. My kids are messed up. I don't have a job. My health is failing. 
I'm lonely. I'm lonely in life. So I'm thankful, you know, for the text and, you know, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing the practical relevance of these words for me because, you know, they're all about the second coming and, and I'm thankful that God is preparing a place for me. I am. I'm really thankful for that and that Jesus is the way to the Father and I believe that. And so that's good news for the future. But is there anything for today? Is there anything for this week? Does Jesus have any words for me here that aren't future-oriented? Is there any comfort for me now in the present? And with these words, John 14 takes an unbelievable turn. Because it moves from future promises to present provisions. I love this. Verse 7, Jesus speaks incredible words. He says to Thomas, Thomas, if you know me, you will also know the Father from now on. Hang on those words. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Now that's an awesome statement. If you think about it, Jesus is looking at Thomas and saying, look at me. If you have known me, you've known the Father. If you've known me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it provokes Philip to speak up. And so Philip's in the back of the class and Philip raises his hand. And Philip says, what's Philip's problem? Well, clearly Philip has a perception problem. He doesn't perceive or understand who Jesus is. He's confused. I mean, Jesus just said, if you know me, then you know the Father. If you've seen me, then you've seen him. And no sooner do those words come out of Jesus' mouth than Philip has his hand up in the back. And he says, okay, Jesus, here's the deal. Look, just show us the Father then. (laughs) Show us the Father. And if you do that, then that's enough for us. Lord, if you'll just show him to us, then everything will be fine. And Jesus, is, he's got to be thinking, I just told you that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now you're saying, now you're saying, you want, me, you want me to show you the Father. How dense. You're looking at me. These are incredible words here. Oh, I mean, if you, John 14 is, is ridiculously deep. It's incredible. Just, I just, I've just never meditated so much on a text and just felt like I'm just, still, I'm, I'm just way, way in the deep end with my floaties on. I have no idea. I mean, this is so deep. And, and, and we're right back to square one because Philip wants to see something with his eyes. It wasn't enough for him to, to just believe. Jesus said, believe in me. Believe also in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And Philip says, I got to see something. Now, I'm going to need you to bring the Father to me. I'm going to need to see the Father with my eyes. I'm not just going to believe like that. Remember when Thomas said, I got to see the wounds. Got to see the wounds. Got to see something. It reminded me of Exodus 33 when Moses says, Lord, sh- God, show me your glory. Remember that? What does God say to Moses? God says, you can't see my face, for no one can see my face and live. Now, hold that there, that thought, that no one can see my face and live, and then pick up Jesus' statement, which says, if you have seen me, then you've seen the Father. Big time tension. What are you going to do with that? Here's what you're going to do with it. You're going to fall on your face and worship. 
Because God says, no one can see my face and live. That is until now. Wow. Jesus makes this incredible statement. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? The implication is that your problem, Philip, is not a seeing problem. Your problem is that you don't really know me. Philip, you, do you want to know the Father? Do you really want to see him? Do you really want to behold his glory? Do you really want to look at his face or touch him with your hands? Yes, yes. Then what do you think you've been looking at for three years, Philip? Don't you understand that I am the revelation of God, that I am the radiance of his glory and the exact, the exact representation of his nature. This is just awesome. There are no words for this. The point is, if you have seen me, then you have seen the father. So Philip... Am I enough for you? Am I enough for you? (laughs) You said, show us the Father and that's enough. And what I'm telling you is that I am the exact representation of his nature. Am I enough for you, Philip? Is Jesus enough for you? Friend, is Jesus enough for you? Jesus is saying, look into my eyes, Philip. How could you possibly be troubled? He's saying, look into my eyes, dear people. How can you possibly, possibly be troubled? I am Emmanuel. God is with you. (laughs) You lost a kid. You lost a loved one. God, God is with you. Oh, friends, do you see the implication of this for your life? Because I'm beginning to see it. But if I'm really being honest with you, I got to confess one more thing to you. I got to confess this. There's one more thing that I'm struggling with in this text. Here it is Jesus is gone. Jesus is gone. Anybody see that? I've never seen Jesus face to face like Philip did. When Jesus said to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I've never had that experience. So what about me? What's my hope? Because if Jesus is gone, then that means he's not with us anymore in person. So what now? Well, believe it or not, Jesus answers that question and his answer is remarkable. Jesus says, it is true that I'm leaving and I'm leaving. Listen, I'm leaving to pay for your sins. I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. But, but that's not all. You need to know something else. Verse 18, and we got to skip into verse 18. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. And we know from Matthew 28 that Jesus has said, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. But how can this be? Because if Jesus goes away, then how is he with us? Problem. Jesus went away, but he's with us. How does that work out? And the answer is found in verse 16. 
Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor, another comforter. The word is paraclete, which means one who is called alongside of. I'm going to give you a comforter who's right beside you ministering my presence to you. Who's that comforter? Well, it says, verse 17, he is the spirit of truth. Now, let me connect one more dot for you. This is awesome because in verse 6, Jesus said, I am the truth. So if Jesus sends the spirit of truth to be with us, then what he's saying is that I'm sending the spirit of Christ to be with you. Which means Jesus is leaving us physically, but he is not leaving us without his presence. He is leaving his presence with us through the Spirit. In effect, what Jesus is saying to you is, you don't have to wait anymore for the second coming to have me, because my presence is with you right now through the Spirit. And people of God, you may not be able to see Jesus or touch him, but his presence is very much with you. It is tangible. It is felt. It is real. And he is with us forever. So church, do not let your hearts be troubled. Because there are some future promises and some present provisions for you. And Jesus is speaking into your troubled life this morning. And he's saying these four things to you. Number one, don't be troubled because I've gone to prepare a place for you. Don't be troubled, number two, because I am coming back to get you. Don't be troubled, number three, because I am your way to God. As the revelation of God and as the life of God, I am your way. And number four, do not be troubled because my presence is with you right now and will be forever. Let's pray. Incredible words, Lord. Incredible words. And all we do is worship you for them, Lord. And just bow down and just say thanks. Thanks, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. So, Lord, give us a week like we've never had before. Because we hang on these words and we just find new hope like never before. In Jesus' name, amen.